Welcome back to the Delia Folk Podcast. I am your host, Delia Folk. I work on the buying team at a luxury retailer and also have a blog, DeliaFolk.com. Today, I'm speaking with Daniela Kalmeyer of Kalmeyer, New York. She graduated with honors from the London College of Fashion, where she got a degree in fashion design and technology. She interned for Alexander McQueen and was a freelance designer before taking the plunge and starting her own line. Make sure to watch this episode on the Style That Binds Us YouTube channel to better get to know Daniela and I. You will get to see some Kalmeyer New York clothes, Daniela sketching, and her beautiful apartment, which is where the episode was filmed. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? So my family's actually from South Africa and we moved here when I was a baby. Um, so I grew up outside of the DC area, but my grandmother, who was a very big influence of mine, lived in New York. So we spent a lot of time in New York. So when people ask me where I grew up, I actually really feel like I grew up in many different places. So is this your mom's mother or the mom? Yeah, okay. my maternal grandmother who, um, was very influential. In fact, after the war, um, she actually worked as a dressmaker's assistant and it was sort of always this running joke in the family, like, um, that I would say that I wanted to be a fashion designer and my grandmother who was vain in all the most, um, attractive ways actually, um, would tell us that she used to work for a dressmaker and she used to be a fashion designer. And we were like, of course you were. Um, but she really did. And, you know, over the years, we've found some incredible things like dresses that she had worked on or tailoring scissors that she owned. Okay. And so which war is this? Um, after the Holocaust. Okay. Um, my grandmother and her, um, and her mother and sister fled, um, Nazi Austria. Okay. Um, and ended up in Israel. And her older sister went to boarding school in England, which is why, um, part of my mom's side of the family is in England. And many years later, she ended up meeting my grandfather who, um, was from South Africa. And that's how, um, that's how I did the family ended up in South Africa. Okay. And then when did she get to, when did she come to New York? Uh, so many, many years ago, my grandparents came to New York. My grandfather was a surgeon and he worked for Mount Sinai. So that was part of the, the move. And, you know, apartheid was happening in South Africa and it was not a good time for anybody. And, um, slowly but surely that side of the family started moving over. Um, my aunt was first. We followed my grandpa and grandmother came next and my aunt and uncle and their kids who were also born in South Africa, my cousins, um, came over as well. And that's all on my mother's side of the family. My father's side of the, fa- of the family is still in South Africa, which, uh, is a very important and special thing to me. And how often do you get to visit? Unfortunately, not often enough. Uh, we were just there in December and, Um, you know, we've, we've gone back every couple of years. Um, this last time that we were there, it was probably the longest gap of time since we had been there and all new babies have been born and people have grown up and gotten married. And 
you know, we've grown up and started businesses and graduated from college and all kinds of things. So it was interesting to kind of revisit that part of our lives as, as like new adults. Mm -hmm. And how did your grandmother become a dressmaker here? Um, my grandmother was not a dressmaker here, okay, which is part of why the story was always sort of humorous in our family. Um, but she did sew and she loved to, uh, make things her own and make things unique. Um, in fact, this ring that I wear that people always have questions about, she sort of had this beautiful gold ring and she set the little stones in it. And she was always adding beads to things or changing things up. My mother still does the same thing. I mean, give my mother a bedazzler and walk away and you'll, your whole house will be bedazzled basically. Okay. So when did you decide to move to New York? Um, I don't think it was a decision. I think it was just like, I always knew I was going to end up in New York In fact, even when I was living in England and studying at the London College of Fashion, I knew that I would end up back in New York. In fact, to my classmates, I would always say, I'm going home for the winter. I'm going home for the summer. And that was to New York, even though I hadn't officially moved here yet. You were born in South Africa. You moved to Maryland. Mm -hmm. And what were the different places in between you've lived? So I was born in South Africa and we moved to the DC area when I was a baby shortly after my grandfather and grandmother ended up in New York. And we spent a lot of time up here and, uh, we actually lived in North Carolina for, uh, for a year and then ended up coming back to the Maryland DC area. And I started my university experience at Syracuse actually, Uh, it felt very familiar. It felt like having that campus experience was this sort of like American dream that I was meant to have. Um, but I knew that I was going to be a designer and I was really fortunate before I started college, even to have like very, um, in-depth industry experiences here in the city, because I had spent so much time, so many summers in New York that when I got to Syracuse, I just felt this like pull for something more metropolitan and more challenging. And so I transferred and ended up going to the London College of Fashion. And a lot of my family lives in in England. And so that felt also like it was just going to a different version of home. I didn't know my cousins as well as I do now then, but it, you know, it was very easy for me to be there. And just having come from such an international family, it was very natural for me to be in another country, on another continent even, and that be part of my trajectory and my learning and all of that. So how has being from South Africa influenced your brand? You know, I think it's influenced my brand in the same ways as being a woman has influenced my brand, being a gay woman has influenced my brand. I think there's a certain set of values in, in understanding an international audience, understanding and appreciating international culture, knowing that I'm not from just one place or that the people I relate to are not just from one place has really broadened my perspective in so many ways. In fact, I think I've probably traveled more on that side of the hemisphere than I even have here. And you know, it's not so much that I'm like so inspired, although I am, but it's not so much that I'm inspired by 
European architecture or, you know, specifically um, global culture so much as the way people present themselves and how they behave and understanding people inherently is part of what I think is such a draw to creating garments that are part of people's identity. So tell me what it was like working with Lee McQueen of Alexander McQueen. What did you learn from that experience and getting to be with that insanely creative person? So I was very fortunate that actually my experience at Alexander McQueen was in some ways like a, like a small bubble inside of it because I was mostly working on the McHugh team and that was a very small team. Whereas the Atelier next door, which I frequently visited, whether it was for, you know, material sourcing or inspiration or fishing through the archive, um, you know, that was like hundreds of people were there and like dozens and dozens of interns and an entire press team and, um, you know, multiple people on the design team and lots of sewers and, you know, hundreds of feathers and sequins and yards of fabric. And my experience of McHugh was like a lot more, um, isolated in some ways and a lot more controlled. And I think that that's actually a big influence into the the trajectory of how I've gotten to where I am in, in finding ways of, of taking sort of like luxury, um, consideration of design and transforming that into, uh, a relatable source, uh, and a, a relatable, you know, context. Um, but I, I do remember just this, the sense of perfectionism, you know, this sense of how long it took to find the perfect dye color or how many iterations of, um, a textile design we had before even that was mediocre, let alone perfect and approved or how many versions of the same skirt that I draped and draped and draped. And I remember being like so young and thinking like, ah, like, <laughs> isn't this fine? It's fine. is not fine. Right. You know? Okay. So we've worked at fabulous companies of all different levels of haute couture and ready to wear. So what did you take from those experiences and how are you applying that to a contemporary brand? So as you said, I've worked for some incredible brands. Uh, now it, it feels like light years ago. Uh, but I started my my sort of experience in the fashion world with Luca Luca, who was not necessarily like this big trendy designer in, in the sense that we know some of the other brands that I've worked for like Proenza and McQueen, but there was an intimacy to the way that he designed to the way that details mattered to the way that quality mattered, that having that been my first experience in this, in this world and in educating myself and understanding the industry that really was so influential, um, you know, taking weeks to find the perfect periwinkle or the perfect red, you know, those things mattered. And then seeing how people interacted with Luca as a designer in the showroom, in the design studio, in the store, all of those different pieces that that kind of fit together really 
explained to me early on why fashion matters and why designing in this way mattered. And it was a very important part of how I started learning. And shortly after that, I was fortunate enough to intern for Proenza Schooler when they were still a relatively small brand down on Walker Street. And seeing that level of detail and that level of um, uninhibited creativity just sort of catapulted me into a different level of desire to be part of this, this world. And having been coming from the experience with Proenza when I was living in England and looking for work experience and a position at Alexander McQueen opened up, I think that it had a lot to do with that, with sort of them knowing that I had come from an environment of that kind of challenge and that kind, that kind of level of sort of authentic design process. Um, and, you know, just working at a company like Alexander McQueen in general, let alone the fact that he was still alive at the time that I was fortunate enough to be part of a team that I think really made sense for me when I worked on the McHugh collection where he was still involved. He would come and review uh, the, you know, the textile work that we did or the colors that we were presenting for the season or the references and, um, inspiration and sketches and drapery and all of that. It was actually considering what a big grand brand that, you know, they were owned by Gucci group at the time that Alexander McQueen was kind of shrinking that into this like intimate experience of, of it being McHugh with a very small team and, and sort of isolating and filtering all of those very huge ideas that, that were where McQueen's couture collections come from and translating that into something that was really tangible to like the everyday person was another light bulb moment for me in my career and how important it is to be able to give that to people. And at what age did you know that you wanted to start your own line? I think that's kind of a, a funny question because I was like, I, I grew up in the theater world. I, um, I love to act. I was part of a musical theater company. I was a competitive figure skater. So costume was so much a part of my world. I, you know, was fortunate that I had a very creative family. My mother was very involved in helping me sort of make or edit my own figure skating garments. I was sort of obsessed with being part of the, um, costume department, even if I was the one on the stage as well. And, um, you know, like I said, with my grandmother, having come from a place where, you know, she had a sewing machine on the kitchen table in the summer when I would stay there and we'd get to fix up our own little things and make changes or sew little skirts or whatever. I had, I had an excitement and a passion around that. And, you know, the story that I always tell is that I remember, Um, my mom used to get these giant rolls of paper from a friend of hers who worked for a paper company and they would get these huge big rolls that were actually just like the end of like printing stock. And 
And we would use it to color and draw and to play with in the basement. And I remember laying my sister out on, on this huge big sheet of paper and tracing her out. And that was like my first experience making a pattern. And I used that piece of paper. And I remember so distinctly having this like gold and black, like lame fabric just lying around in the house and using that cutout of my sister. And I made like basically a paper doll dress, like a flat paper doll dress and like put it on her and we did a fitting. And I don't think I was older than eight at the time when I did that. And things progressed from there. My senior year of high school, instead of having a graduation party, I actually put together now, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it was like a ridiculous collection, but nonetheless, it was something that like I did from start to finish. And so I put together this collection. I think there were 21 looks. I employed all of my dancer and theater friends to be models. Um, we rented out a dance studio. I had like 200 people there. And that was like, instead of having a graduation party, like that's what I wanted to do. So I think I knew I wanted to be doing something like that, uh, since as long as I can remember, but it was a different kind of decision to start my own brand in a business world as an adult, um, after having other kinds of experiences. So how did you know it was time to start your brand? So I was living in New York at the time I had, um, graduated. I had had all these incredible work experiences and internships. I had been freelancing for some great brands. Um, some like more couture, some more contemporary, um, some private label. And, you know, all of those were like the pieces that put the fashion industry together. You know, the TJ Maxx brands are just as relevant as the, you know, Harvey Nichols and Barney's brands. But even with all of that, there was like something missing in the middle that I felt. And I think every good business comes from a need right? It comes from a lack of something. It comes from a need to fill a space. And even as a young artist, as like a young consumer in my very early twenties, I felt like there was something missing in that market, in that contemporary accessibility space that had that same sense of sort of international sophistication, these garments that you can wear in front of your, you know, your grandmother in front of your best friends with your, with your business partner to an interview, to a first date that was accessible from a price point perspective, but also from a lifestyle perspective, but that had this sense of kind of personal grandeur about it when it comes to class and sophistication and timelessness. And that's where it really started. And I had some incredible mentors. And of course I had a very supportive family around me who I think always kind of knew like it's early. You can always keep working for other businesses, but yes, you have a point of view. You can do this. Uh, you should do this. And it was almost like I was waiting for the green light from people that I respected in order to say, you know, I'm just going to jump off this cliff and grow my wings on the way down. So how do you get that quality of the haute couture quality and have a sharp price point for the contemporary brand? I think that that is twofold or possibly even like tenfold. Um, I think it starts with aesthetic. 
for sure. And I'm always considering how many places can a person wear this garment? What does it mean for them to wear it in a casual way? What does it mean for them to wear it in a formal way? Can it be both? Is it too much this? Is it too little that? And that's really, really a part of my design process, of my aesthetic design process. Um, I think I'm fortunate from an experience perspective that I understand construction and quality because of my background, because of, you know, the tailoring instructor instructors that I had at uh, the London College of Fashion, because of being around kind of perfectionists like Lee McQueen and like Luca and like the guys from Proenza, you know, you you have a greater sense of these things matter. Um, and then just over the years, I have developed very valuable relationships with my factories and with the, um, you know, the relationships within the garment district, the garment industry that have given me the opportunity to have that sharp price point, you know, it's expensive to produce in New York and it's because of this sort of level of trust and communication and relationship building that I think I'm really fortunate to be able to provide a price point that's so competitive through that kind of manufacturing process. Okay. So paint me a picture of what it means and looks like to be a designer. Wow. Um, you know, I think that depends. I think it depends on what kind of designer you are because immediately when you ask a question like that, what comes to mind are the women that I design for the client relationships that creating a world that makes women feel stronger, better, more confident, more interesting. And that's what, that's what that becomes for me. So meeting new people who are doing interesting things or changing the world in their own way, that's part of my inspiration. Um, I could, but, but I'm not going to talk about how walking through the botanical garden or going to a show or whatever is, is, you know, seeing a, a beautiful work of architecture, like inspires me. It is inspiring, but it's inspiring in context. And without the people in those, in that context, the clothes are just inspired by architecture. They're just inspired by a flower. That flower is, is nothing without the person who can smell it, you know? So, you know, it's about choosing fabrics that can wear through your life. It's about creating shapes that make a woman feel a certain way or stand a little bit stronger or take a couple of minutes or hours even off of her day of getting ready because she can grab this piece out of her wardrobe, put it on, it fits her perfectly. And she doesn't have to worry about whether or not this is appropriate for the board meeting or sexy enough for her date or, you know, confident enough for drinks with the girls. And what are some of the tasks that you're doing throughout a month in order to produce a collection? Well, you know, the, the fashion cycle is so cyclical, of course. Um, 
So it never kind of stops. And there's that saying in, in our business that, you know, you're late with the, the next collection before you start the first. And that definitely rings true. So, you know, having relationships with my stores and with my customers is really the most important thing without that. What are you doing it for? So first and foremost, monitor, monitoring and controlling and perfecting quality, um, and timeline is, is a very, uh, focused part of how my process works. And from a design perspective, as far as like sourcing inspiration, well, that just comes naturally from like being out in the world and meeting new people and having new experiences and, and being aware of what's going on and how those customers are moving through their life now, as opposed to five years ago, or as opposed to even a year ago, when things are changing and different things have become important to different people. And so, you know, you have to consider, well, what does the working woman or what does the um, activist woman or the creative woman need now that she didn't need back then. And so you're constantly filling in that and that's how I design. Um, but as far as like a day to day, well, you know, I work with some, um, material innovation and material sourcing resources that will help me eventually completely, um, you know, innovate the way that I that I create products so that there's less waste or it's more easily maintained or it's more ethical or it's more environmentally safe, but that's a process. And I've always said that, you know, environmental and sustainable fashion is a process. It's a process. That's not just our responsibilities, designers. It's also a responsibility of sort of engineering and, and, all levels of, of environmental causes. And, and, you know, those are the things that I think about when I'm choosing fabrics and when I'm considering those design elements, but really, you know, having that, that sort of start to finish consideration, like I talked about with Luca, that's, you know, day to day, week to week, month to month, season to season. That's what it looks like for me is, you know, how do I create a timeline with my production that is, fair, that makes sense, that, that works, that I can give people this product quickly and with like an absolute perfect quality, um, while also innovating throughout that while also staying connected to the customers that I'm doing all of that for. And so much has changed since you started your line. How have you adapted to this crazy world that fashion is becoming? You know, I like that saying, like jump off a cliff and grow your wings on the way down kind of thing. Um, because it has been, especially as a small business and being almost entirely a one woman show, um, it has really been like an adaptation and constant adaptation of, of values of processes you know, even, and I don't want to sound like such an old garmento because in many ways I'm, I'm, I haven't earned that right. I have not been around that long, but there were so many more factories when I started, there were so many more, you know, places to find fabrics. You have to change and adapt that you have to change and adapt to the way that people are utilizing technology and 
you know, if I'm a brand that stands for quality and for fit, how do you adapt that to a, a place and a space that is so manipulated and controlled by digital? And those are just things that I'm constantly innovating. And sometimes that becomes the most frustrating part of my business and the scariest part of my business, because it feels like it's sometimes taking me away from, you know, the creative process. But then I'm reminded that that's actually part of the creative process as well. How do I rebuild my website so that navigating it is interesting to the modern woman? How do I change the way that I deliver my product so that it is more sustainable or it is more, um, you know, environmentally sound? How do I communicate the story of my brand and the story of the woman behind my brand through social media without it being gimmicky because my, my customer is less influenced by what everyone else tells her to be influenced by, although she is still very aware. Great. And designing and producing the collection in the U.S. is something that you feel strongly about. So how have you made that possible and made it work? So I do feel very strongly about producing in the U.S. I do think it's still important to create jobs, to keep the garment center alive. You know, without that, the, this place, this hub of innovation and creativity for all kinds of artists, but, you know, mostly designers, it just wouldn't exist. It's, we, we can't take away all of the manufacturing and expect there still to be a place to sample and innovate and test and try things. That's not to say that I don't think that there are global benefits to helping communities in, you know, underdeveloped countries create manufacturing and jobs and support their cultural um, craftsmanship. I think that that's very important too. But for me with a brand that is based in New York, it is important that part of that is kept alive and part of that is controlled. And I think that the control, the quality control element of it is also a big part of why I have not sought outwards for different kinds of um, different places to manufacture because I know that I have a hand in everything that happens, whether or not I'm sewing 300 blazers myself, I'm there when it happens. I have that very close relationship with my factories. They understand this sense of quality and, and, um, je ne sais quoi of, of what a Kalmeyer garment is versus somebody else's. And, and I communicate that with them constantly. They're communicating it with me constantly. And it's part of how creating that high quality garment really works because the process doesn't just stop on paper. It doesn't just stop after you've designed the sample. It continues when you are manufacturing. Things change. Things are are mobile. You have real hands who are building and creating every single one of those pieces, even if it's an assembly line. And being able to be part of that, being able to at an instant run over to the factory and answer a question or see how this is working, be part of 
perfecting it in the process is part of what the, the brand is about. So walk me through the process of designing a collection, including the timeline, and also how do you choose what pieces go into that collection? So it used to be because I was so influenced or so considering the fact that even though Kalmeyer is a timeless brand, it needs to fit into a contemporary world. It was so much more about the story and the inspiration. And it really wasn't until my business picked up and um, that realization that this brand is nothing if not the woman who I'm designing it for, that that story became less important than the product that it was providing or that was providing it. And so I don't necessarily consider any more one collection to the, the next its own entity. They are all evolutions of each other. And my brand has, and is, and always will be about creating a wardrobe portfolio for my customers. And so that's something that you build upon. It's something you're constantly seeking gaps to fill. So this season, it might be all about the blazer while next season might be all about the dress, but that's only because I feel like I'm giving my customer that one more thing that she needs. And that one more thing doesn't necessarily mean one garment. It could mean an assortment of garments that fit together in different times of her life or different parts of her day or fit together in a different part of an outfit. But it's really always about going back into that closet, into that wardrobe, understanding what her life is about right now and filling those gaps so that she doesn't have to in her mind so that, you know, we remove that thought process, but we we don't remove the personality of this woman getting dressed. And how would you describe the aesthetic of the brand? So the short answer would be that I create elevated everyday staples. So whatever that means for the lifestyle of this customer, you know, finding ways to elevate those moments where they're still comfortable, but feel special is how the aesthetic is formed. Um, the long answer is that I take the thought out of dressing, but not the personality. So like I had said before, you know, finding garments that can move through every moment of a woman's life um, and ways of designing those garments that are familiar, whether it's a blazer or jeans or a dress, but elevating them so that they feel just right, not too formal, not too informal, not too fitted, not too loose. Um, you know, that that gives women the opportunity to get dressed in a way that they don't have to think twice about whether this is right or appropriate or strong enough or bold enough or mature enough or, or flirty enough or any of that. And that's kind of the, the aesthetic is this balance. It's not necessarily, while it may have started off that way, because this was a, um, an easier way of describing it, it, it's not necessarily a balance of masculine and feminine. It's more a balance of, of how you want to be presenting yourself on the outside and how you want to feel about it on the inside. 
Did you inherently know how to run a business? And if not, how did you develop these skills? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I still don't think anybody does, especially in this day and age. I think, you know, you have these heritage brands who are employing millennials to try to figure out what the heck they're supposed to be doing. And, and you have millennial businesses that are trying to take some things from, you know, the old guard, but also constantly innovating every day. And those people maybe know inherently how strongly they feel about what they're doing, but does anybody know really what we're doing anymore? And I I think that that's been the proudest thing of owning my business is that I have given myself this gift of education every single day of like learning how to do this, how to do it better every day, answering my own questions, finding ways to answer those questions, finding ways to ask myself more questions, finding people around me who can answer those questions, who can support my answers, my, you know, my decisions. Um, you know, that's part of running a business and, you know, someone who really knows how to do this, they just know how to figure out how to do this. What challenges have you faced and how have you overcome them? I think, you know, I think the biggest challenge has been, well, a few different things, you know, financially, I've never been one to, um, be reckless with capital. Um, I think it's important to learn to be responsible in business and to find ways of making big things from, from small decisions, small financial decisions, rather than trying to make big things from big things, because you lose so much of your power and your strength and your creativity when too much is provided for you. And, you know, it's like, it's like a drop in the ocean kind of thing. Um, you know, as a, as a small business owner, I think anyone would answer that, that it's that I think right now being a small business owner, the answer has a lot more to do with where people's priorities are right now, how things are changing so quickly. I'm in a very tangible business and things around us are changing in a very intangible way. Um, Whether that means that everyone is moving to e-commerce and um, marketing is, is, run entirely through social media when it wasn't when I started. Um, you know, that is, that's a huge challenge that every single day you have to kind of scrap the day before and, and find new ways of doing things. But that's also the greatest pride of owning your own business is you get to be part of that change. You get to be part of adapting and evolving and, and, you know, mobilizing. How did you design the logo and the website? And also you're keep evolving the website. So what does that look like? The logos had a couple iterations. We've edited the font a little bit over the years. Um, and like I said, I started off as Daniela Kalmeyer and rebranded as Kalmeyer New York. You know, I think I just really wanted it to have a sense of timelessness, a sort of linear quality to it, um, that it felt new, but that it also felt established. 
Um, and that's sort of where that comes from and where I think a lot of my graphic decisions come from. The website, yes, has evolved. It evolves constantly. Uh, I, I think of, I think of our website as something that's very interactive. It needs to be interactive. It needs to be interactive because I have e-commerce on there. It needs to be interactive and reactive because it has a storytelling element to it. It's not just about presenting product. It's about inviting customers and viewers of that site into, into that world and giving them a place that they can find what's missing from their own worlds. What advice would you give to someone interested in starting their own company? I would say my advice to someone who wants to start their own business is establish the need, um, establish what problem you're solving. Don't try to do everything all at once. Um, You know, if your business is about doing everything or having an assortment of everything, then find a way to simplify a different part of it. So for example, um, brandless or Amazon, you know, you can get everything from, from them, but the, the, um, execution and the delivery is as simple as it possibly can get on the flip side. Maybe if you're creating a fashion brand or a product, find a way to simplify that process for yourself, whether it's through sourcing, you know, how can you create an entire collection from just one material or how can you create a full line from just one concept so that you don't have this buffet of all things complicated because it's just too hard to control and it's too hard to place value on that many things And the customer will feel that as well. They won't know how or where to value all of those different things at once. So I would say if you can find a way to simplify one thing so that you can infuse everything else into that other thing, then that will make your own process and your own evolution and your own innovation more more interesting, more worthwhile. You know, you'll have a foundation somehow. Where is Kalmeyer New York today and what does the future of the brand look like? So Kalmeyer is in a great place. I've never felt more sort of established and grounded in our identity and in our customer experience. And really trying to embrace that is really part of what the future of my brand looks like and creating a stronger line of communication or delivery to my customers that is not necessarily just about e-commerce. Like, you know, I think that there's a lot of talk about e-commerce and that's an important part of creating a, a, a more exponential delivery system, of course, for my business, but also creating a larger platform for those women who are so interesting, who are the reason why I keep doing this season after season and year after year and finding a way that that platform actually becomes really interconnected for them as well, because it's not just about the clothes. It's about what the clothes mean in the world that they exist in. So I think that's the future of all kind of experiential productivity, brand awareness, brand development. 
um, but especially for me. Great. Thank you for listening to the Delia Folk Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Delia Folk Podcast channel so you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a review letting me know what more you want to learn about or any feedback you have. Follow along on my adventures on social media channels at Delia Folk is my handle. Until next time.